Welcome to Business Lens, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm joined, as always, by Chris Hill, the host of Motley Fool Money, which is the number one stock investing radio show in America. Chris, what's going on, man? I'm still recovering from my Thanksgiving food coma. How about you? Yeah, we're recording this uh, not long after. Well, I mean, it's it's a multiple. Well, first of all, we turned our Thanksgiving into four nights, okay? Four nights of family gatherings. Just add a few more. You've got a full Hanukkah going. Uh, we're doing great. <laughs> and uh, speaking of marathons, nowadays, it's not enough to do Thanksgiving. You got to you gotta have Black Friday. You got to have Cyber Monday. We're recording this on Giving Tuesday. Uh, how is it looking? I think things are looking pretty good. And the reason I am somewhat hesitant, Matt, is because more often than not, when we are in the holiday retail season like we are right now, um, investors have a pretty clear picture of how it's going for most retailers. It's, It's not exactly a rising tide lifts all boats, but in general, when the retail environment is good, it is good for retailers across the board. We're not quite seeing that this year. Um, you and I have talked over the past uh, couple of months about Target in particular and the struggles that Target has had. So I think that is a, a, a company that is significant enough and it bears watching. So that's why I'm a little bit hesitant. Um, putting aside my hesitancy, the numbers that we've gotten so far from Black Friday and Cyber Monday are really encouraging. We had record sales on Black Friday, $9 billion worth of sales. Um, Cyber Monday, we're still getting the re- the receipts in, but it's looking um, equally strong. I've seen reports of somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 to 11 and a half billion of online sales on Monday. So that's, you know, that's great to see. And I think that, um, in general, since America is an economy driven largely by consumers, that's great to see. Here's one thing that I think is, is worth mentioning and worth watching. A much higher percentage of purchases over the past long weekend were purchases made using the buy now, pay later model. Mm. Um, there are more and more businesses like a firm that have popped up that enable people um, uh, to, you know, to essentially pay in installments. Um, and sometimes for the bigger ticket items, that makes a lot of sense. Although I've had experiences where I'm shopping online for a single t-shirt and they're like, Hey, do you want to break this up into four payments? Um, I appreciate them asking, but uh, fortunately I don't need to break up, uh, you know, a, a $25 t-shirt into four four different payments. Yeah, that's called uh, a tank top. But w- right. so when you do that, are you paying more? Is there an implied interest rate on this or how does it work? Um, I mean, it, it, it. I've never done it before. So I, I don't have the consumer experience to know exactly how it works. On the surface, it appears to work just like, um, kind of like a credit card would, where it's like, oh, well, you know, you can get this thing right now, but you're going to pay us in installments. Um, but if you're not able to pay us in those installments, that's when the interest kicks in. Um, so that's, I, I think that is sort of um, a, a data point worth watching um, as personal savings rates have dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's one more brick in the wall of, um, you know, our economy is not quite as strong as, 
as some would like it to be. Um, but in, I, I realized that was sort of a, a very long, all over the map kind of answer to your question. Uh, in general, I think we're looking pretty good this holiday season. Um, the National Retail Federation um, it came out with their prediction earlier in the fall in terms of uh, a pretty strong uh, holiday season for shopping uh, year over year, uh, an increased summer in the neighborhood of six to eight percent higher than 2021. And the track record for the National Retail Federation is good. These are the people who are closest to the ground. They got their finger on the pulse. And so um, uh, in general, things are looking pretty good. But the, it, there are still a couple of things worth watching. I'm fascinated by both aspects of what you just said, kind of the the top line numbers, what they augur basically for the status of the economy, and also this kind of like, let's put it on layaway model. I, let, let's start with the second part first. I mean, that this seems like one thing that you see, we're recording this on Giving Tuesday. This is, you know, a, a yearly tradition that's turned into an annual custom in recent years. So, what you see the charities push for is don't give us a lump sum now. Start becoming a monthly donor because what they want is stability. They want regular income. Is it sort of the same idea underlying this push toward this, this buy now, pay later model for retailers? I mean, it would seem like a win-win for them. They both get a, hey, we've got this on the books. It's revenue. Doesn't matter to us if we get it now or we get it later because it's not like we're in a cash flow crunch type situation. And a certain, I'm imagining a certain percentage of people per that credit card model you mentioned won't make the payments and they'll just end up paying more. It's like they become the bank. And if you're going to pay a credit card company for your debt, they're figuring, hey, pay, pay us instead. Well, a couple of things. You know, if you're a retailer, it makes perfect sense. Um, you want to give um, as many options as possible for people to pay you for whatever you're selling at your store. Now, there are um, some payment systems that come with fees that are a little bit more onerous. And that's why you see some businesses saying, you know, we don't accept American Express. We don't accept, you know, uh, some of these other ones as well. But in general, I think for retailers, it, yeah, we we want to offer as many options as possible for people to buy stuff. I, I You know, the, the point you made about nonprofits is something that we certainly have seen more of over the past decade. And it's something that the investing community has watched for decades, which is what are the businesses that have predictable streams of revenue. Mm. And that's why subscriptions as a business are so attractive to Wall Street. It comes in the form of, business, of consumer businesses like Netflix and Disney Plus, and even Costco with its membership model. Uh, but it also comes in the, the business community with things like enterprise software, um, and and people paying for Slack and and Salesforce and and different software solutions, so that's why anytime you can get people into a recurring revenue subscription model, it's more predictable for the business. They are better able to make um, decisions about how they allocate capital, whether they're doing hiring, whether they're making investments, whether if they're a public company, they're doing a dividend payout. Uh, or a share buyback plan or something like that. Um, so it, you know, as opposed to where we started this conversation, which is holiday retail, 
this is for retailers. This is the most important time of year, um, for, regardless of what you're selling. Um, you know, this is the most important time of the year for retailers. And, um, uh, you know, fingers crossed that it works out for consumers and businesses as well. Well, I will comment very quickly that now that you say that, it's like you're you're building on on what I said. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna up the ante even further. Now that you say that, I'm kind of seeing it all around me. It is interesting how many businesses are asking me not for a lump sum, but they want to inveigle me into paying a certain amount for a month, and they're willing to give me a discount to do that because the certainty is worth it to them. I just bought a new printer because my old printer kind of crapped out, and the new printer company. I won't, I'm not going to benefit them by giving them free advertising here. You got to pay for that and preferably monthly, but they, they want me to subscribe to get ink. They don't want me to just buy ink when it, when it suits me, when I run out of ink, they want to sell me, even if I don't need it, they want to sell me ink every six months. So anyway, it's, it's interesting that you say that not now that you say it again, like, you know, the program that we use to edit our podcasts and videos they want you in a monthly subscription. They don't want you to, when I bought video editing software three years ago, it was buy once. Now these programs want to get you into a monthly. Fascinating that you mentioned that. Um, there's one more question on the Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales. Obviously consumption is still, it's about two thirds of the US economy. It's a huge portion of the economy, but we've all heard about how much of the economy has shifted toward the service sector in recent decades is is the retail sales number still as significant in terms of a barometer of overall US economic health as it used to be it is it's a little more complicated this year because you have to factor in inflation and so it I, I'm not particularly surprised that we had a, a a record Black Friday when you factor in how much um, inflation has risen over the past 12 months. Um, the National Retail Federation is, was quick to point out this morning that it wasn't just due to inflation. It was also due to close to 200 million people like doing, you know, doing some shopping over the weekend. So, um, but yes, I, I think that, you know, while the service industry is still um, an important part of the economy, um, retail is still sort of the, the big game in town. Mm. So, just shifting gears a little bit, but kind of on the theme of how much stuff we buy and how much stuff is in our house, you wanted to talk a little bit about the protests uh, unspooling across China, originally uh, apparently incited by a, a horrible fire that happened in Rumchi, China, in which firefighters were unable to reach the victims because of a COVID lockdown. And that spurred a reaction from people who apparently are fed up with stringent COVID protocols in China. Um, how do you view this set of protests from an American business and investing standpoint? Uh, so you're right about the fire, um, but this is this is something that's really been um, building up over the last three years. Um, uh, when you think about uh, China and sort of particularly in 2022, the rolling lockdowns that, that have happened, um, you know, from an economic standpoint, everyone listening uh, on WKXL, everyone listening to us right now, Matt, has something in their home that 
came from China. Procter and Gamble is, you know, one of the biggest consumer products companies in the world. Uh, somewhere north of fifteen thousand products that they have have at least one ingredient coming from China. So when we talk about the supply chain, yes, we're talking about Apple and iPhones and that sort of thing, and and the technology side, but it's also the consumer product side as well, mm. and. Um, and there are also businesses that are based here in the U.S. that have um, operations in China. I'm thinking about you know restaurant chains like McDonald's, uh, Starbucks, Yum Brands, which is the parent company of KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut. Huge presence in China. Um, layer in the fact that unemployment among young people in China is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20%. We're talking, really? a, yeah, we're talking about people oh. in China between the ages of 16 and 24, and their unemployment is close to 20%. And, uh, you know, you can take issue with how accurate that number is because it's coming from China. But even if it is directionally accurate, I think that points to part of why we're seeing these protests in major cities like Beijing and Shanghai and Wuhan, um, because... Uh, the central government had spoken earlier this fall about easing restrictions uh, around their zero, zero COVID policy, and they got a rise in COVID cases, and they just essentially doubled down on the lockdowns. And, and um, I, I think it's worth watching um, even though it's on the other side of the planet, it's worth watching from a human rights standpoint, um, from a geopolitical standpoint, and yes, from an economic standpoint. Um, so many American businesses depend on China's economy functioning, um, uh, if not at a high level, certainly uh, a basic operational level. And I think the disconsent that we're seeing in particular among young people in China is what makes this um, particularly noteworthy. So you alluded a moment ago to the fact that it's not only China is not only integral to the supply chains of many major U.S. corporations. It's also an extremely important market. It's a, it's an outlet for American companies, goods and, and services to to some extent. And one of the major economic data points that we've seen in the world in the last couple of decades is the fact that hundreds of millions of people have moved literally in many cases from rural poverty in China to urban middle-class status, and they have become consumers. And I, that's to say nothing of the Chinese government and their their means and methods for accomplishing that. But in terms of human well-being, it, it certainly is a notable accomplishment, but it's also a really important economic component for U.S. companies. To what degree has the, the potential for economic and political unrest and uncertainty in China been baked into the business plans, the supply chain plans, um, and the, the stock market outlook on companies that are so tied up in the Chinese supply chain and the Chinese market? I think it depends on the business. I think if you are looking at a business like Starbucks, uh, it's been baked in. It has absolutely been uh, baked into the assumptions that China, which 
uh, is really the second most important market for Starbucks in terms of the number of locations it has, and really was going to be the growth engine for Starbucks business over the coming decade or two. Um, that's essentially um, the pause button has been hit on that. And that really has been baked into what's happening with shares of Starbucks. Um, so any surprise to the upside, if the central government were to reverse course um, and that and sustained that for six to 12 months, I think that would bode very well, not just for Starbucks, but for the other restaurant brands that I mentioned as well. I think for a company like Apple, it's a little trickier. Mm. Um, and I think we're seeing that lately with um, shares of Apple coming down a bit because in the wake of these protests and, and uh, recent events in China, uh, we're getting more reports about fewer iPhone units moving and being shipped from China uh, because that's really where they're built. And so it's, um, it's not looking like it's going to be as good a holiday season for Apple um, as a result of that. So it, you know, it, it depends on the business. I think for a lot of businesses though, it really has been baked in. And I think there is a, an appropriate amount of skepticism from investors and wall street when looking at any business and factoring in, well, how much are they dependent on China, whether it's their supply chain or part of their growth story, that is a box that every investor on you know is looking to check and find out like okay well what what does this really mean and i think in most cases um everyone is discounting appropriately of course there was a lot of talk in the last couple of years about diversifying supply chains given how vulnerable they were to disruption in china uh, around covid and then around all of the snarls that we saw in in supply chains that have been one of the drivers of inflation has that actually been happening or was it a lot of happy talk uh, it has been happening in some cases but you know supply chain you, you can move your supply chain from china to say for example india um and uh, you can factor in that that will be higher costs and that will take some time. It's nothing that happens quickly. So, you know, this, this has been part of the conversation around Apple. Should they be looking to expand or at least diversify their manufacturing base? Um, would people pay for, you know, four or 5% more for an iPhone if Apple's cost structure went up four or 5% because they moved their manufacturing from China to to India. Um, I would argue that, yeah, people will do that and Apple can essentially charge what they want. But again, Matt, it doesn't happen quickly. It's the sort of thing that they, you know would take two to three years to put into place. Well, let's close out on, um, you know, speaking of outlets in the Chinese market, let's talk about Hollywood for a second. And of course, we all know Hollywood is addicted to reboots these days. And we saw perhaps the biggest reboot in Hollywood ever the return of Bob Iger, um, revenge of the CEO. He's back just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. Chris, I, I don't know, the the, um, the Hollywood movie title metaphors just keep rolling off the tongue. What's your reaction? On our most recent radio show, we had our Thanksgiving special and we start our annual Thanksgiving special by everyone going around the table and having a slice of humble pie. And a humble pie for investors is we talk about something we got wrong this year. And when it was my turn, Matt, 
I said, my humble pie, the thing I got wrong in 2022 was my declaration that former CEOs would not return to their former jobs. I said it earlier this year with Starbucks and Howard Schultz. There's no way Howard Schultz is coming back to Starbucks. And just last month, uh, when Disney uh, was, and the former CEO, Bob Chapek, was running into some trouble with their latest earnings report, I had a conversation with one of our analysts who said, what do you think? Do you think they would, that Bob Iger would come back? And I said, there is a 0% chance Bob Iger will come back. And I was dead wrong. Um, it's pretty amazing when you consider that just four or five months ago, the board of directors at Disney renewed Bob Chapek's contract and gave him a couple of extra years and then just reverse course to the point where in the span of, I believe, less than 72 hours, the board of directors at Disney went from approaching Bob Iger to announcing that he was returning. Um, the stock popped the following day. This happened on a Sunday night. This was the Sunday before Thanksgiving and Monday shares of Disney were up something like seven or 8%. And I understand the skill set that Bob Iger brings to the table. And I understand the enthusiasm. There are still some significant challenges that the business faces and um, Bob Iger is now the one who has to fix them. And um, something I said on our show that I'll, I'll repeat for you, Matt, is there are a lot of things in Bob Iger's career. And look, if there was a business hall of fame, Bob Iger is a first ballot hall of famer. I mean, he just had such an amazing 15 year run at Disney as the CEO. You know what Bob Iger was terrible at? Just objectively terrible. He was, he was just bad at succession planning. He delayed his own retirement three times. There were a couple of different people who were tapped to be the CEO in waiting. And then through various machinations, they ended up leaving Disney. So when Bob Iger comes back and says, I'm going to be here for two years, I'm going to write this ship. And part of what I'm going to do is help the board of directors figure out who the next CEO is going to be. My response to that is, uh, is there someone better we could get for this? Because you're amazing at so many things, Bob, but picking your successor is not one of them. All right. So many questions, so many things to, to ask you about. And we're running out of time. I better do it quick. First of all, speaking of Howard Schultz and Starbucks, is there no other CEO potential in America who could figure out that the key to success for that company is to convince people that drinking burnt coffee is delicious? Um, that, that seems like a very obvious business model. It's worked for them. And Howard Schultz is the only one who picked. OK, anyway, um, let me let me see if I can consolidate all my many, many questions into just one. I'm wondering if Chapek actually screwed up here because Disney was doing pretty well and as you say, like five minutes ago, he got a contract extension. They had one crappy quarter of, of earnings results, and he's out the door within 72 hours. Is this the ultimate case of corporate short-termism and just fleeing to, well, this will stabilize the stock price, and here's the known, you know, and it's comfortable and it's safe. Like, I mean, is that what's going on? Did Chapek really deserve this? So I, I, I can't say whether or not he really deserved this. I don't think it's complete short-termism because one of the things that Bob Iger is truly great at, he has been in his previous run as CEO, and I think this is part of why they brought him back. He's great at selling Disney. 
He's great at partnerships. He's great with the entertainment community. And Bob Chapek made his bones at the Disney Corporation at the parks. And he was great at running the parks. But Bob Chapek is a little prickly. Um, th- when there was the whole dust-up that went public with Scarlett Johansson over the Black Widow movie and her compensation around that, I remember saying on our show at the time, if Bob Iger were CEO, this would not be public. If Bob Iger were CEO, this would be handled behind closed doors, and he would smooth this over in a way that would make everybody happy. It would not be public. All right, I'm going to put out a competition to all of our listeners. Come up with the best Hollywood-inspired reboot theme for this news. We'll hear back about that the next time. We have Chris Hill of Motley Fool Money, number one stock investing show in America. Thanks so much. Thank you, man. 